Well, nice to see you all this evening. I know where the Presbyterians are sitting. They always sit in the back. So if you're in the front row, I'm assuming you're a Baptist. I also expect feedback as I talk from the front row. So a few amens are always, always nice. I heard Tony Campolo once talking. He said, you know, you're in trouble when in the middle of your sermon, there's a woman in the back of the church. And she says, help him, Jesus. So uh, anyway. All right. So, so one thing I'm going to disappoint Zach. I'm not going to talk for an hour. Nobody has that kind of wisdom. Uh, definitely not me. What am I doing wrong? Can you speak a little closer to the mic? Closer to the mic. Okay. Those of us hard of hearing in the back. All right. All right. So we're going to be talking about the the mindset of of marriage, and I want us to to begin with a passage that I think we just simply run past too often, and it's that one verse in the Bible. Uh, that Jesus goes to whenever he's asked a question about adultery um, or marriage or fornication, anything like that, um, or divorce. It's a passage that the Apostle Paul goes to. Uh, I think it's fair to say that this is the the go-to passage in the Bible when we begin contemplating marriage and and what it is. Most fundamentally, uh, this is where we ought to begin. It's Genesis 2.24. And we're going to look at this passage this evening, and actually we're going to look at two words. And that's what I'm saying. You know, 30 minutes per word, I don't think we're going to be able to do that. Uh, but it's very important, and it's fundamental for what, how we want to begin to think upon a marriage in this time together. But let me just read this passage to you, Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So in Matthew 19.5, Mark 10.7, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.16, Ephesians 5.31, these passages uh, always reference this particular passage, which is the very first commentary we have in the Bible about marriage. This is where God is, is telling us something about the very nature of what marriage is. And so we begin by thinking of this word, leave, leave. A man shall leave his father and his mother. And we're assuming that this applies not only to the husband, he's not the only one leaving uh, a relationship, applies to the wife, and later on we can reflect upon, well, I think that might be the case. I don't think it's that particularly clear. But we're asked the question first, what what are we leaving? And what he's talking about, of course, is leaving a father-mother means that uh, a man and a woman are both leaving that natural tie, that parental bond, and relationship that they always knew. They're leaving home. And we ought to think of, of this word leave as, as a word that potentially is very strong. It appears over 200 times in the Old Testament. It's the word uh, that, that God uses when he speaks to Israel in Deuteronomy 31.6. And he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But it's also conversely the word that he uses uh, to indict Israel. And he says, Israel, you have, you have left, you have forsaken uh, the covenant, it's the, the word that appears in Psalm 22.1. And when our Savior was dying on the cross, he says, why have you forsaken me? And in that lament to heaven. So it's a word that can be very strong. It can mean to utterly forsake, to utterly abandon, say, the covenant. Or I will never 
ever do that. But it's a word that can also mean to relinquish or more moderately to, to uh, neglect a relationship, to, to forfeit. So it's, it's a word that falls on a continuum and it's a word that can mean something very strong or it can be a little bit more on the milder side. And here it's used and uh, you'll have to figure that out as what you think, but I think it's somewhere in the middle. It's the word fear in the Old Testament, which can stand for, uh, for dread, terror, but it can also refer to respect. It's, it's a word like that. And so here we have to, you know, think about it a little bit in terms of the context and, and what the rest of the verse says for us to appreciate where does this fall in there? What does it mean to leave your father and your mother? So we begin by contenting ourselves, uh, affirming that he's saying that you are leaving the most significant relationship you've ever known. What is the relationship that has formed you and shaped you more than any other relationship that you've known up to this, this point. And we have to think of all the things that we associate with home, the people and the places, the customs that we were introduced to, the habits that were formed, and we would say the ways of thinking, your attitudes, your mindset. And we'll talk a little bit later why that word mindset is so important. He says, you're leaving that. This is what shaped you. You're leaving what's, what's influenced you to the point of even your identity, your, your personality in one sense, your tendencies. All these things were shaped by this, this home. And this particular relationship of mom and dad and how they related to, to one another, this is what has shaped you and has been uniquely formative. We could even say comprehensively. What you think not only about, about food, or about dress, uh, what a normal routine, routine is, but, but how you talk and how you think about all of your life, even emotionally and spiritually, hopefully, uh, this relationship has, has shaped you. And so when it says leaving father and mother, it doesn't mean just geographically. We think, oh yeah, I no longer live underneath that roof. And we're tempted to think something like that. We can't, you can't be that superficial when you think about this. It, it's more than that. I think of uh, the fact of, of how difficult it is uh, uh, to, to move to a new place. My wife and I, three years ago, just moved to California. And so now when people say, where are you from? I have to say I'm a Californian. It's very difficult to say that. <laughs> I'm Nebraskan. I'm simple and I'm normal. And, uh, and now they think all these other things. I'm sorry, I take back, I have a Californian here. But, um, but you think of these things, uh, you're from Iowa, and if you've been in Palo your whole life, I mean, this, this is part of who you are. And when you come into town, after you've been away for a couple of weeks, you're comforted, you know, to see the Yarsma Bakery, you know, and the Vermeer Mile, you just say, oh yes, and cornfields. Yes, I had a friend who was traveling, and he said, oh, just cornfields and cornfields in the Midwest. I said, yes, cornfields. <laughs> and alfalfa processing, you know, and every now and then a feedlot, you know, this, the fragrance of, of life. But anyway, but these are the things we associate with home, but it's deeper than that. And so we ask ourselves, so, so leaving here then, so what does it technically mean if I'm leaving uh, my parents in the relationship? What does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean you discard your parents. Sayonara. That's it. I'm married. They were talking to you again. Thanks for everything. Have a good life. Or to neglect their needs or their honor. We honor our parents always. That's a commandment of Scripture. We may not obey them as we did as children, but we still honor them. And we are to, to take care of them. First Timothy 5, 
uh, speaks that the person does not care for family is worse than an unbeliever. So it's not as if we, we jettison this responsibility that we have to our parents. So it doesn't mean to utterly discard them, but it does mean this. It means that that former parental bond has to give ground to something new, to a, a deeper bond, to a greater bond. And these natural ties, which have such a tug on my heart to the day I die, are now trumped by marital ties. And what God is saying in this passage is that marriage is so unique, it is so central that it, sh it shapes and it shakes up all other commitments. All of the obligations that you had up to this point, the loyalties uh, that you held dear up to this point, including our parental tie, all have to shift around this, this new central relationship. And what that's telling us, of course, is that entering into this marriage relationship, it is disruptive. It sends tremors into your life and all other relationships, not just your parents. Obviously, this would include friendships as well. And what Genesis 2.24 is saying, of course it should be. In principle, it's, it's supposed to be this way. And if you're not thinking about it, in reality, it's going to be this way. When you can think upon it, be prepared for it, get good permittal counseling and, and try to prepare for this shift that's going to take place as you adjust to this new person. But some people don't do that. Doesn't mean they're not gonna have a good relationship. They're gonna conform one way or another. They're gonna find out how disruptive this can be. And as a pastor, I have all kinds of stories of couples that found it much more disruptive than what they were anticipating. And some that found it far less disruptive than they thought it was going to be to their delight. But it was a shift. And that's what it's saying. And so that gives us some, some good bones to work with here in terms of what we mean by leaving. But there's, there's one other thing attached to this that's so important for us to keep in mind. And it's this, if we're leaving something, it means we're bringing something. If this is true, this relationship of my parents being in their home and watching the way they relate to each other, and this has kind of set up my expectations, for what marriage is. This is how two adults talk to each other who love each other. This is what it means to be in a home that's safe. These are the ways in which a normal family conducts itself. If I'm leaving that, it means I'm bringing it too. I'm bringing something of that with me into this new relationship. And that means there needs to be a level of self-awareness, a kind of self-knowledge of what, it has, what is it that has influenced me? What is it that is shape my expectations about all of life. What is normal? What is marriage? And you see, this is the baggage we bring, good or bad. When we say baggage, we always tend to use that in a negative way. That's not true. We bring lots of positive things. That's the reason this other person is interested in you. They like your baggage very much. So on one level, we're leaving the past, but another level, not completely, not completely. I'm not shedding all of it and I, and I can't escape all of its influence. You've heard the saying, you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. I shocked my kids one time, we were walking someplace and I said hello to somebody, but I said, howdy. And my, my son Josh says, howdy, what is that? Where does that come from? We're from Philadelphia, you know? So that's how we talk in Nebraska. This comes out, right? And this is true in scriptures too, by the way. This is free. This has nothing to do with marriage. 
that Paul is writing in Greek, but every now and then his, his heart is kind of exploding. And underneath that is, is Aramaic or Hebrew. That's, that's the language he had as a little boy. That's how he, he talked. And that happens to all kinds of languages. It comes out in English, but underneath it, it's Espanol, where we live in Escondido. This happens with our international students, right? It's, it's a language of your heart. And that's exactly what it's talking about here is that it's, it's, it's that part of me I've not yet shed, and maybe I shouldn't. Because again, if, if I'm leaving something, but I'm bringing something, that has to do with both strengths and weaknesses. And some of those things I'm aware of, and some of those things I'm not aware of. There are things from, that I learned from my parents that I absolutely should be bringing to this marriage, those things that they did really well. Things I should emulate, that I should never forsake, I should never forget. But there's other things too that maybe wouldn't be so good in this particular relationship. And all of us come with all these unspoken assumptions. This is why we say premarital counseling is helpful to get some of that stuff out on the table. You know, a lot of us come to marriage and we realize we married somebody who squeezes the toothpaste tube from the middle. But who are these people? This is weird. Were your parents even Christians? <laughs> but we come with all these habits, right? And, and some of them are good, some of them are bad, some of them are neutral. Who cares for the squeezing the toothpaste? She's not squirting it on the floor. That's good enough for me, right? But think of what Proverbs 22, 6 says. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Precisely. That's the same thing. There's certain things that are instilled in us or things that we instill in our children that they cannot forsake. It just keeps coming out. And that can be good or bad. And you see, this is part of that awareness we need to have about ourselves as we leave and cleave of this transition. And scripture is simply acknowledging this. But this also means, because I'm marrying somebody else, there should be awareness of the other person. That entering into this, this marriage is this disruptive uh, to this new relationship of marriage, all the stuff that we're both bringing, this way it's supposed to be, it's the way it's going to be. But it means I also need to be thinking upon my spouse. The differences between us of how, how they were formed and how they were shaped. And just thinking, taking some time to be thoughtful about what my spouse has left and what are they bringing to the relationship as comparison to me. I mean, this is, this is two people coming together and it's not just yourself, that would be selfish just to think of yourself, but you're also trying to be thoughtful of, of your spouse. This is this, this otherness in this relationship and trying to appreciate what they're saying and how it's rooted in the fact that this is the way I was raised. This was my life for 20 years before I even met you. And so the question is then, how do we handle those differences? With contempt? There might be differences that you found very attractive at first. And these can become the things that can later on divide you. Ladies, you, you found it very charming, if not cute, the way that when you were first dating and he would belch at the dinner table. But then after five years of marriage at your in-laws, he's still doing it. It's no longer charming. That's, a, that's an innocent one, right? Nobody laughed at that. You, all you people belch at the table. Is this like a normal thing? Because some cultures, that's really important. You do that. You know, you produce a belch. The food was fantastic. But there are those differences that 
who we handled fine at first. And the reason why is because we were so in love with each other, we didn't want anything to disrupt our relationship. So we didn't go very deep into some of these things. But as we grow comfortable with each other, we realize that there's some of these things we kind of passed over and we need to talk about. How do we handle that? Or this loving awareness and to realize when it dawns on you that you did not marry a perfect person, you actually married another sinner. And you remember 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says that love bears all things. Love endures all things. This is, this is what it means that I have taken a vow before Christ to walk with this person all their days in sickness and in health, not just physical sickness and physical health, spiritual health, spiritual sickness. And some of the differences that we have are spiritual differences. We approach things differently. We're not reading our Bibles the same way. This can be very different. The first time my wife met me, uh, I was not reformed. I didn't share these convictions that she had. And I can take you to a place in the cafeteria at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary where I, I took my hand out, slapped the table, and I pointed at her and I said, I will never believe in infant baptism. And she just kind of smiled and said, okay, we'll see about that. Well, there was a lot of differences there theologically. This is true for every marriage and there needs to be a mindfulness about this as part of this leaving and cleaving is to be thoughtful of towards our spouse and other person. That's, that's it. And then there's a process of leaving uh, that for some of us, that process of leaving is, is feeling a brokenness. There's this, there's this beautiful phrase in Psalm 45 verse 10, where it's speaking to uh, the bride and this, this royal wedding that's going to take place and addresses both parties in different parts of the psalm. In verse 10, it says, forget your people and your father's house. And it sounds so cold. It sounds so brutal. Just forget about that. But that's not what it's saying. The author in this expression of joy is trying to say something sympathetic to say to leave your, your country, to leave your father's house and all of that. This is difficult, but look what awaits you. Look who you're marrying. This is going to be wonderful and beautiful. And that's what the author is saying there. But it's completely empathetic that leaving your, your past is difficult. And for some people, this is tremendously sacrificial. It means giving up things and perhaps leaving behind things that, that we held dear and that we uh, loved, something we always thought we'd have, you know, always living in the country in Nebraska. I've lived in Philadelphia and Chicago, now I live in Southern California. Somebody said to me, why did you leave Philadelphia to go to Chicago? And I said, you know, our five children were born in, in Philadelphia. My, my wife is from north of Philadelphia there, and we have lots of attachment to it, but we can no longer take the political corruption and high taxes, so we moved to Chicago. <laughs> and now we live in Southern California, so I, I don't know what's after this, you know. But there are tremendous sacrifices uh, that each of us make in marrying this other person. There's several dreams that we had. After college, I moved to Alaska and I wanted to, to hike and climb and camp. And I got myself into this class uh, train to climb Mount McKinley. And I had this dream and I was talking to a friend and, they, and I, I told him I met Carol and, and they said, I, what about your dream? What about your dream to climb this mountain? I said, I found something more interesting. It was Carol. There's lots of sacrifices that we make. And so all these things are wrapped up in this one word to leave. 
It's so helpful. All right, but there's a second word, and it's cleave. Right? A, a, a man will leave his father and mother, but he will cleave to his, his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So what does this word cleave mean? This is an, another interesting word that's used in Scripture. Here it's talking about cleaving to this marital tie, and it's a, it's a word that can mean to adhere to, uh, to be joined to, to hold fast uh, to this other person, to be united to them, to stick to them. It can even be translated to cling to them. That's, it's a word used of Solomon with regard to all these wives who led astray in 1 Kings 11.2. It says uh, Solomon clung to them and their idols. The picture here is to think of when you're pulling a pair of jeans out of the dryer and there's a sock, right, that's stuck to the jeans, clinging to it. That's the idea, right? It gets hold of it and won't let go. And it's used uh, throughout the Old Testament in this way. And so it's talking about leaving that parental uh, bond and, and what it meant for you. And now you're cleaving, you're sticking to this other person. And one of the first things that should come to mind is the fact that this means we have to establish boundaries. These are two distinct entities. I'm not cutting off my relationship with my parents uh, completely. It's not like that. It's not, it doesn't give me permission to dishonor them or to forget them or to forget my biblical uh, responsibilities to them, but it means I'm creating a boundary for this one express purpose, and it's to protect this new relationship. This new relationship that now takes priority in my life over this former relationship. And I wish there was some way of getting around it, but there's no other way to say it. And scripture is very concerned about boundaries. If you think about it, the seventh and the eighth and the tenth commandments are all about boundaries. You must not covet your neighbor's house. It's not your house. It doesn't belong to you. This is the boundary. That is your neighbor's wife. She's forbidden from you. This is a boundary. This is not your property. You can't steal it. Scripture is really concerned about boundaries. And this is the great boundary in our life. That this relationship takes such priority that nothing else can touch it. No other earthly relationship, I should say, can touch it. And in one sense, it's a positive thing that I found uh, something and I found someone that justifies my leaving my family and leaving my past to begin and to form something new. Now, this can be perverted, right? This can be taken too, too far. This can happen to a young person being very unwise and literally cut off all their family because they're so in love and just takes off and cuts off all ties, all ties to reason or to counselors. And that's not what we're talking about. It's talking about like when we find something that we like, we get a hold of it and we won't let it go. Like, I, I, I don't want to live without this person. I'm going to hold fast to them. I'm going to cleave to them. And you see what Scripture is saying. This is not just a new relationship. This new relationship of marriage <clears throat> is the most important earthly relationship that you have. It's even central to the home. This is the hub. The children are the spokes that emanate from it. And their whole world and their security goes back to that hub. This is central. This is most important. And so marriage now is to be that which is uniquely formative. In all the ways in which uh, your parents were formative to you and that relationship that, that you observed, now it's this relationship that comprehensively and deeply is to shape 
uh, the man or the woman I am to become. And that's true emotionally, that's true spiritually, it's true in every sense. It's to take that kind of priority. It shapes who we are, who I become. And there comes a point where you can't even remember when you were single. There comes a point when your, your thoughts of your spouse are so intermingled with your own, you're not even sure, is this my opinion or is this her opinion? I guess it's our opinion. And there's a point where you start to realize that your priorities are being shaped by your marriage more than any other relationship and your, even your identity now. And that's, that's right. That's the way it's supposed to be. All those former relationships and those priorities and commitments, they're giving way uh, to this new and stronger bond. Think of the vows that we take when we become married, forsaking all others. It's the very language of Scripture, forsaking all others. It means cutting off uh, many relationships that were unhealthy. There are a lot of friends that have a hard time when we get married. And so they may have a, a just complaint, <clears throat> like you've ever called me in five years. Okay, I'm sorry, I should have called you. But others are complaining because you're not calling them every week because you used to. But you have this new relationship that I'm married. Now I can't do that. It's not appropriate. So this is just recognizing what it's saying, but it also <clears throat> it means that we need to have this mindset that we leave in order to cleave. This, this transition out of that former way of life into this new way of life, that this is appropriate. And this is how a couple is supposed to live out this new commitment with, with each other. So let me just explore just a few ways in which we, how we cleave. And we'll be talking more specifically about some of these things as we move through these, these topics be, before us. And I think it begins, first of all, with, with awareness having as much awareness as, as we can of something new is being formed. Have an awareness of what we will be. Scripture speaks here of becoming one flesh. I think it, that's meant to communicate uh, something much more than a new physical bond. It's, it's a reflection of the fact that we become one in such a way that Ephesians 5, reflecting upon this reality, he says, no man uh, despises his own body, and there's reflecting upon the fact that, that there's two bodies that are part of this relationship. They're now one flesh and that he is to consider her as, as precious to him. He cherishes her. Why? Because this is how he takes care of his own body. This is taking care of himself. And so this becoming one flesh, better yet, to become one means in all ways. It's physical, it's emotional, it's spiritual. How do you even separate those things? And it's an awareness of that, of this unfathomed depth that we have in in marriage, it's so, <clears throat> um, in one sense, immeasurable, and sometimes it's a mystery to us. But Scripture is saying this is what's going to happen. <clears throat> and if I could put it this way, this is one of the reasons why in Scripture God builds a castle around sexual intimacy and then has barbed wire on top of the walls with the moat, with alligators, and the warning signs all around it because it is so incredibly precious and powerful. This is the, the, one of the strongest cocktails, as we were, that we have on the planet. It's marital intimacy, and it's preserved for this relationship. And why? It's because it's so profoundly mysterious. There's a connection that takes place in marriage that is almost impossible to quantify. So when Scripture says to become one flesh, it's not simply talking about an act. It's talking about 
two that truly become one all the way down. And scripture is saying that happens in many ways, in many levels, whether you're prepared for it or not, whether you think about it or not, this is what's going to happen. But it's saying this is not just what will be, this is what should be. And you need to have this mindset uh, that more and more you need to become, become one, not where you lose your personalities, not that where you lose your, your unique gift sets or your opinions. We're going to talk about that. But that you're truly one. And having that awareness. And so that means, secondly, we need a mindset of cleaving. Let me just talk about three things on this. And it's committed to have the same mindset. Uh, there's an awareness here that we're working together. And that means we're aware of our past formation. Think of it this way. I'm a, I'm a college football coach. And I'm coming, I'm going to check out the, the quarterback at Palo Christian School. They're playing tonight, correct? Anybody know the score? You're not supposed to know because you're so intrigued with what's going on right now. You have no idea what the score is. But anyway... But I'm coming to check out the quarterback of the football team. As it turns out, uh, they run a, a pro set style offense, high on passing. But the quarterback from Pellet Christian School runs an option offense, primarily run a running offense. So I, but I think he's got so much talent, so I really want him for our team. But there's an awareness that I have as a coach that I get this guy who likes to run the football to pass, because I think he's got the potential, means I set my expectations that this is going to take some time. I need some patience, right? I need to have this kind of awareness that if we're going to win as a team, I have to be thoughtful about how am I going to migrate him into, into this system? And so it's helping one another to understand uh, this. So forget football. We're coming back to marriage now. But helping each other to appreciate their past. And it means not just thinking about your, your own, but but helping your spouse to think upon their past and the home in which they were raised. Uh, there's a, a lady came up to me last week and she was reading this passage in a book and, and it talked about this. It, it said, as we as Christians, that we, we run into the presence of our father and then he does what good fathers love to do. He lavishes good things upon his children. She said she, said she read this and she said she had no idea what this meant until a year ago. She's about 70 years old, and she was single her whole life, and she married this man, and she found out what, what love is, and began to appreciate the way she was raised. And one of her friends came up to her and said, you know that you were raised in an abusive household, right? I mean, you understand this? And she said, how would I know that? It was the only household I knew. But she married this man who's an OPC elder, this loving, gentle soul, who is opening up to her what a loving husband and what a loving household could be. And he is helping her to understand this, this abusive past that she had. He's helping her to see this is what love is. This is what the love of God looks like in a home. And this is where a spouse can be so helpful to another spouse to help them to see. So it's, it's a group activity. And also to work together uh, towards the same desires. What are our goals? What are we aiming at? And, and doing this together, this, this awareness of being committed to the same mindsets. And there's, so there's this intentionality, this, this thoughtfulness that we have together on this and choosing these, these things together that we're committed together to, to choose 
closeness over distance in our relationship. We're going to choose companionship over distance. We're going to choose a relationship as opposed to isolation, especially if we don't get our own way. We are going to commit ourselves to love as opposed to apathy. And we're going to choose life over death. These are the choices we're going to make together. We're committed to the same mindset. It means, secondly, committed to grow in the same direction. Again, Genesis 2.24, they shall become one. Not just one flesh, but cleaving together in all of life. And that means we're growing in the same direction. It's gonna, this is going to take several, several commitments, several graces. One of them is growing in self-denial. We're going to talk about that uh, later on. And that we're both committed to grow in self-denial more than self-absorption. And what does that mean? It means that in self-denial, when I'm making these choices to, to deny myself, there's sometimes there's some scrapes and some discomfort and uh, some nicks that come along the way, even some hurts, because I'm choosing to, to hold my tongue. I'm, I'm choosing not to insist upon my own way in this. And again, as we were saying earlier, it's that process of leaving that many times this is a, a difficult thing. It can break some people because, because why? Because it means I'm surrendering. It means I'm choosing to deny myself certain things for the sake of this marriage, for the sake of our, of our coming together. And there's a great pain in that, of giving up things, leaving behind uh, so many of the things that we used to hold dear and the things that, that must change. And that comes through self-denial. It's a fundamental Christian commitment. Christ says you have to take up the cross. You have to deny yourself. Uh, John Calvin said that's the sum of the Christian life. Self-denial. I think in terms of being committed to growing in the same direction, it means growing in good communication. Good talk. And good talk means I'm committed to, hard, to hear even the hard things from you. Tell me honestly, how do you, how do you think this went? And see, now there's a choice right there for that spouse. I could lie. I could flatter. I could change the subject. Or I could answer honestly. I could answer in such a way that it's clear that we're on the same team. I can speak the truth in such a way that it's obvious I'm committed to you. And I want to see you improve. And I'm going to say it in such a way that you can accept it. Hard talk is like that. Good talk is like that. Iron sharpens iron. Doesn't mean there have to always be sparks. But committed to, to hearing what this other person has to say to me. Being committed to, to speaking the truth in love. And that leads us into the whole idea of, of intimacy. And by intimacy, we don't mean physical intimacy here at this point. What I'm talking about is that type of knowledge where I'm getting to know you in a way that nobody else can. Because you're disclosing yourself in a way that nobody else has, or you've never done with anybody else. That's what intimacy is. It's, it's disclosure and it's, it's discovery. And disclosure means that I'm, I'm going to unveil part of my inner thinking. I've never expressed myself this way to anybody else, but I'm going to tell you honestly what I think. And I'm afraid to talk about this. You might think less of me, or this is embarrassing for me to admit this to you, but there's this, this transparency in this, in this honesty that comes with this where I'm not hiding, 
I'm not going to blame anybody else. I'm not going to distort it. I'm going to stick to the facts. I'm going to tell you the truth as I, as I see it. There's that level of disclosure. And that is so difficult because it takes so much humility. And it also means that I feel safe enough I can do this with you. I'm not having this conversation with X or with Z or this. I'm having it with you. And that's what intimacy is, where we're disclosing on this level. But it also means I'm willing to discover things about you I never knew before. That I'm not afraid of this adventure, this new ground. This is very unfamiliar. Nobody's talked to me this way. It's like the first time you have a conversation with one of your, your teenage children about dating. And you're saying in your mind, I can't believe I'm having this conversation with my daughter. But I'm so glad I'm having this conversation with my daughter. But that's what growing in this commitment means. Having these conversations that are hard and, and they're painful. And one of the hardest things about it is to see yourself as you truly are. When you realize what they're saying, this is, this is true. They're not saying this because they despise me. And she's not saying this because she disrespects me. He's not saying this because he's belittling me. This is the truth. But if we're going to become one, if we're truly going to cleave, this is what's necessary. And every couple eventually finds this out. They find it the, the hard way or, or the easy way. I'm not sure there ever is an easy way. But growing in this discovery has its rewards. Um, it's, it's difficult. There's this risk of vulnerability that when we share on, on this level with each other, but there's also this fact that now we're embracing our future together. There's all this unforeseen formation that lies ahead for us. But this is what we're doing together. This is the new ground we're going to take together that we can actually talk to each other in this way. Accepting these new patterns, these new approaches, a, a new attitude. And, and like you're helping me to see this in a different way. We're finding this, this middle ground, this new mindset together. But of course, all of this demands being of the same mind. That's what we're going to talk about, about next. But I think last of all, that means being committed to Christ. This is what's obviously underneath all of this. We'll be more explicit about this in the next few sessions. But being committed to Christ, to know that we are cleaving to Christ together as a couple. This is what is at the very bottom of this relationship. This is what the very center and the heart of this relationship is. It's Christ. It's the only reason I feel that we can do these things, that when I misspeak, that I can ask for your forgiveness and you forgive me because you know what it means to be forgiven as a sinner. This is what gives me hope in this relationship, that we're cleaving to Christ together, that we're both trusting in his love. Both of us together, hand in hand, are trusting him for the forgiveness of sins. We're trusting that God accepts us in his son, even looks upon us as righteous through the righteousness of Christ that we're trusting in his, his care for us. He's the one who brought us together. He's the one who can keep us together, even as we walk through these difficult conversations. And the reason why we can trust in his love is because he demonstrated it upon the cross. But he demonstrates it still. Because we're trusting in his steadfast love that clings to us. That's part of this relationship. The whole picture of our marriage is pointing to what? It's pointing to the love that Christ has for his church, the love that he has for you and to me. It's not just that we're clinging to him by faith. He's clinging to us in love. 
And this is why we believe in Christ's wisdom and in his goodness that he's, he's polling for us and that he sees even more than I do what my spouse has left and what she's sacrificing. He sees more than, than I do what my husband has done for me and what he continues to sacrifice for me. This is what Christ understands and he is behind us. He's underneath us. He's going ahead of us. He's in us. And this is why we can have such confidence in this, that this is part of that process of sanctification, this, this work of God's grace in Christ Jesus, where he's continuing to, to mold us and shape us in his image and conform us to his death and resurrection through marriage. This is why Luther understood that all the, the monasteries in the world could not possibly compare to the sanctifying grace that comes in marriage. And it's how through your spouse, this mirror that loves you, can help you to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and die to yourself and put on the fruit of the Spirit and become more and more beautiful, truly, as you increasingly are renewed in the image of God. This is, this is the purpose of marriage. And it's what undergirds our confidence that, yes, we're leaving and we're cleaving, but all of this undergirded by Christ who helps us in all of this.